everybody. What's happening? Welcome back for another episode of Ranching Reboot. For the podcast this week, we packed up the studio and headed over to Severy, Kansas to meet with my friend Gail Fuller and his lovely companion Lynette. After some tacos, we sat down on some comfy couches by the fire and I hit the record button and this is what happened. Today we're going to talk about the Fuller Field School, what it's like taking over a retired organic farm trying to rebuild the soil from scratch, and Lynette talks about her enterprises with Airbnb and farm stays. One of the things she mentions that people are asking for a lot is stargazing, and guess what guys, most of us live far enough outside of the city lights, or our ranches are out there, we can offer stargazing experiences. So check that out, if that might be something you're interested in, check out landtrust.com or click the link in the description. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Horrible setup, you know, at a table with a mic, you know, with the professional microphones. It's just, I'm trying a different, uh, I'm trying a different travel kit. This one's a lot less junk than I've been carrying around. So, uh, did, uh, have you talked to Aaron about doing this at all at No Tone the Plains? Talked to him yesterday on the road, yes. Yeah, because he said he, he'd been to visit you. Yeah, yeah, because didn't we him. talk about it when he was here? He said he'd just been to have lunch or dinner with you guys, and mm-hmm. then we talked to him like the next afternoon. Because I thought somewhere somebody said they was going to have you just come and talk to speakers. Yeah. I think that's kind of what Aaron's. Yeah. Well, yeah, I thought we had that conversation. Maybe I'd suggest it to him. I don't know. Because you did that at Soil Health. You know, I, I think, you know, doing some live stuff like that is, well, should be good for business. We're going to do that at Soil Health U. And then a week later, we're going to turn around and do the same thing at No Till on a Plane. It's going to have uh, space to be able to meet people. Um, maybe have a little area on the trade show floor. Not real sure. But at both Soil Health U and No Till, um, they're going to let me have use of a room to where I can take people and we can, you know, do short recordings, get some thoughts down. Not necessarily do, you know, like one of these full two-hour set-downs because yeah. that's probably a lot at a conference. But I'm not sure there's any value or if it would even be possible, but I have a friend coming from Iraq. Tell me more. He's the mini- retiring minister of agriculture. Yes, yes. Oh, cool. we will. De- yes, I definitely want to speak now, to that. Now, he was here in eleven. And spoke, I mean, we couldn't have a conversation. He, he knew enough English just to get him in trouble. Okay. So there was an interpreter. But we, we keep in touch on Facebook. And he is now sending me Facebook posts that are three or four paragraphs. So his, I'm guessing his English is getting better. Maybe he's learning. I don't know. Or maybe he's just using some translate button on Facebook that he never used in the past. <laughs> Well, I mean, another couple of months, I think ChatGPT will be able to do real-time translation from any language to oh. any language. And if, if, he, if he isn't speaking English, he'll have an interpreter with him, but that kind of makes a podcast a mess. So I don't, but... Yeah, we'll definitely have to work on that. 
he's a very interesting guy and you know he's spent his career trying to feed a starving nation that's crazy and in a starving nation in a desert in a desert they do have water he said that you know the, the one advantage he said they have water but they have no and they can't leave carbon there his problem with cover crops is he goes farmers can't leave one ounce of anything on the field after harvest or the city people steal it for firewood wow you know so stocks residue it's it's a mountain they have to climb wow, wow. what a problem to not even consider yeah yeah, you always think that you grass is greener on the other side of the fence. It, it's not greener on that side of the fence. Yeah, for and sure. he, he made a comment that would be very relative today with what's going on at dinner that night. He said, the biggest problem facing my people today is at the end of the day, there's not enough protein on our plates to keep our brains functioning properly. Wow. Wow. Well, I, and I guess that can lead into, I, that that leads into everything. If soil, what is it you say, Gail? If soil's not soil, the answer. Soil is the answer. What's the question? Right. There's a question. And it all, it all circles back to healthy soil to grow yeah. healthy food, healthy nutrient-dense food. Yep. And I, I just can't help but think, you know, we're, we just sat down for a meal of tacos just a few minutes ago. And I was thinking, man, this is, you know, this is just, Wonderful foods, wonderful nutrient dense food that that we know where it came from. Mm -hmm. Like everything, everything in that meal, we know where it came from. We know who grew it. We know how it was processed. And we were we were talking at dinner that the the last decade that we were all skinny was the seventies. And what happened in the seventies? We started to get more processed food. We had microwaves. We Everybody had to get busier and, you know, two, two members of the family working full-time jobs to support everything. And now we don't have time to run a garden. We don't have time to cook home-cooked good meals. And, well, let's just get it in a box. But what, and it's kind of like preaching to the choir, right, Dale? So what do you, tell me what your thoughts are. I agree. Yeah, you know, the, this started in, a lot of it really started in the 70s. I think the other thing that happened in the 70s is when we really started to ramp up chemical use in agriculture. It was just one other thing. And, you know, the misinformation campaign of fat is bad for you, and then red meat is bad for you, eggs are bad for you, and kind of pushed us into the into this. So I think that's where a lot of it started. But and I think, you know, we're so blessed. You know, the meal we just shared, I think part of the, the glamour of living small town or rural America, it's not hard to find a farmer. You know, I think about, you know, living in the middle of Kansas City or Detroit or New York, how difficult it would be to, to find this healthy, nutrient-dense meal and know where it came from. So I, we're blessed to be here. That's a great point. Um, so I, I was at Regenerate several weeks ago. And one of the speakers there that I had a chance to talk to is a gentleman named Bobby Smith, I think. Anyway, he, he runs a place called the Metro Atlanta Urban Farm. And his farm, it's in Atlanta, downtown. It's, he said it's five minutes from downtown, 10 minutes from the airport. And listening to him talk, but what you said made me think of that. Like there are some of us producers out here, we kind of get 
like, why, why, why is this all so hard? We just want to give people food, right? But the problem is when you get a million people in a small area, and how do you get enough food in for a million people in a city like Atlanta that's all local and fresh and raised by people that care? Then it becomes a monumental problem. And I don't know. I, I hope Bobby will return my email so I can get him on a podcast and, and talk about what he does. And, mm-hmm. and he had some really great stories about changing people's lives with food. Like one of the reasons that he does what he does is he wants to be able to grow food to give away to the you know, poor and homeless communities there in Atlanta. I think it's pretty cool. Have you seen the TED Talk uh, Gorilla Farmer? I haven't. Ron Franklin? Is that his name? He's, he's in L.A., South L.A., and he's been doing similar stuff for a long time in L.A. with vacant lots. The city came after him. Even though he was required to maintain his lot in front of his house, so he planted it to food. And the city said, no, you can't do that. He goes, well, I'm maintaining it, and I'm giving the food away. They make but him quit? They tried. And then that, that we watched Common Ground Friday night, and I thought the most intriguing farmer to me, maybe because it was out of my league, is the, the gal in New York. And if I understood it correctly, she's going around to homeowners and renting their lawn. I don't think she's paying to rent it. They're giving them, giving her their lawn, and she brings in a farmer and soil and makes raised beds or whatever she wants to do and plants it to, to a garden, and then it's all given away to underserved. It's all taken to a community. To, yeah, community. like a food hub. Or, yeah. Yeah. That's really I mean, neat. Exactly. I mean, how yeah. many thousands of acres are there in New York or Atlanta that, or you know? Or Kansas City. I've seen what? somebody that's doing that with, with kind of like what you're talking about. So there's a lot of people that want their yards landscaped, and they're willing to pay to have their yards landscaped. But a lot of those people don't even know that it's an option to landscape with food. And what a cool business idea. But Emporia, um, I don't know if you've been up Commercial Street in Emporia the last few years, but they've got these little garden plots on each corner of Main Street now. There's trees and flowers. So, well, I think you actually know her, Marsha Lawrence. Yes. Grew up in your country. Yep. So she was in charge of one outside when she had the bookstore. She goes, well, great. I'm going to plant mine to food. Nope, you're not. Said he wouldn't let her. Wow. And you got to wonder why. I mean, maybe it's because uh, your trees with fruit on them, the fruit falls off, rots, it attracts. Yep. It attracts rats or crows. I can see all kinds of reasons. Liability issues. Yep. Picking a green bean off the plant and claiming you got sick and sue the city. All kinds of reasons. There's all kinds of excuses to not expect people to be responsible for their own. Most of them, you can go back to a lawyer, figure out their, <laughs> where the problem is. Absolutely. <laughs> it isn't the city, and it's not the person growing the food. <laughs> it's, it's usually a lawyer. <laughs> Probably don't want to add that in. A, a lawyer with an interesting concept of personal responsibility when it comes to choices. Yeah. Well, it, I'm not going to say I think we'd be all be better off if it wasn't for lawyers, but I think the world might be a vastly simpler place. Well, 
something I've wanted to know for a long time is how did you guys meet? Good question. We always knew each other because we grew up in 4-H. So we always knew each other because we were in the same county. And the county 4-H program was really what brought all the rural kids together across the entire county, which the county is relatively large. So it was kind of nice. So there were lots of events like that. So I always knew who he was, but we really didn't. He was older than I was, and so I had no, you know, I wasn't really interested. But, but uh, later in life, we became competitors. Uh, we, uh, our children showed pigs in 4-H against each other, and I guess I kind of took cattle. Yeah, and cattle, but mostly it was pig competition was the one that I was more interested in. Yeah, so somebody told me one time, you keep your competition close. <laughs> so I guess I, I took that one literally, I think, is what I did. So our kids showed together, and then I just kind of like, he's kind of interesting. Yeah, I kind of enjoyed visiting with him. And yeah, it's kind of an interesting character, which I never had really, I'd never really talked to him. So I, I well, like Even it. in high school, I hung out with your two older brothers. I mean, plenty of parties and... But still, I mean, just she was he enough younger. He was the younger, old guy but... then, right? He was just the old guy. Yeah. Wasn't really interested. I have a similar in... story about Brian and and thinking he was the old guy when I first met him. Exactly. You're just <laughs> we'll like, tell that I'm... one another day. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, oh no, we'll be having that one. Yeah, but yeah, it was one of those kinds of things. So, of course, so you guys grew up in the same community. We did. We grew up um, in the same not, community. Well, no, not really. No. She grew up at Nopi small Catholic town south of Emporia, and I grew up just north of Emporia. So, yeah, we were in the same county and showed at the same fair and all that, but our families didn't really intertwine. It's not like we hung out at no. ice cream socials no. and anything outside of 4-H. So, yeah, just, yeah, so we kind of got to got to know each other, and then, of course, divorce always brings people together, and so... Had that similar experience also. Eighteen years later. <laughs> Eighteen years. Huh? Eighteen years later. Eighteen here we years are. later, we're still together, and I bet that was never a prediction. <laughs> no. And I bet it's been a fun ride. So, <laughs> the last time we really had a chance to catch up was just over a year ago uh, when I came over for your field day, uh, field school. But sorry, I couldn't make it over this year. I had a couple other things going on. How how'd the field school go this year? We did two this year, uh, both fantastic speakers. We're just so blessed, you know, to get the people to come that we do. Uh, the Springfield School, we had a focus on water and economy. And we had uh, Dee Dee Purse House did a segment on the water cycle, large and small. And she's just, I, I think outside of Walter Yana, she's the next best speaker on the planet when it comes to water. Of course, she trains under Walter, so. And then we had uh, Laura Lennick and Abe Collins. And, and both of those are really fantastic, not just with their knowledge of water and stuff like that, but they're both really trying to do things community-oriented, you know, regionalizing systems again. And, and especially Abe, it's about regionalizing economies. So he was, he, he kind of blindsided everybody because everybody knows Abe as a grazer in in the northeast and a grazing consultant and a and a watershed guy he loves to talk about watershed function and all that but he's working on a project in vermont now of you know instead of paying for environmental services like we're doing with carbon markets and trading on wall street he's trying to do it regionally locally where 
the town actually incentivizes the farmers for better practices and in turn gets better products and and just a whole new economy that he's working on. And so that was that was really awesome. And then this fall, we had uh, a holistic educator, Jeff Goebel. And I think, you know, probably the most timely topic we've ever done was conflict resolution. Apparently there's some butting of heads going on anymore at what we're told. But I think there's a few people that are legitimately trying very hard to start World War III right yeah, now. Exactly. So that that was really good. And Jeff's just a wonderful person. And then we teamed him with Deanna Lazinski, just a fabulous farmer in North Dakota who's, you know, now direct marketing flour and pasta and and all almost all ancient grains and her story and her husband Kelly's it's just fantastic. And so it was it was a great couple of days there too. Really good year. Do you have anything on the schedule, any plans yet for field school coming up in spring, or are you just trying to get through conference season first? Um, there, we For now, we're not going to do a spring school next year. We're just going to go back to one per year, cut our workload in half. And uh, we have it booked October 3rd and 4th, and our speaker will be Dr. Nasha Winters. Okay. Lynette and I will also be speaking. It's going to be geared towards physical health. Um, if you don't know Nasha, she is a fantastic doctor, cancer doctor. Um, she was diagnosed at 19 with stage four terminal cancer, cured herself, wrote a book, got educated, and now she trains doctors that are trying to get out of this system that's not working. She's in the process of building a farm in Arizona to treat cancer patients on. Interesting. Exactly. Wow. We shouldn't be treating sick people in hospitals if we want them to get better. We should be treating them on farms or in nature. And that's exactly what she's doing. Uh, yeah, Tanya and I, when we were driving yesterday, we were actually having a discussion about a friend of ours that's been through cancer, that survived cancer and been through two really heavy rounds of chemotherapy. And like the conversation was like, you know, this person, yeah, they're trying to eat better, but they still go out and they, you know, still drink a little bit, still eat some crap. And then we got to talking like, well, this doesn't make any sense. You know, you basically are trying to poison the entire body just to kill one little, just to really hurt one little part of it. And, I guess what I'm what I'm thinking, what I'm getting at is like a lot of other things that we we've kind of started to realize that maybe the answer is not trying to kill that, but trying to stimulate the really the parts that would be healing itself. Does that that make sense, right? Yeah, the mechanisms the mechanisms are all. I I mean I really believe they're all in the body that we need to to keep ourselves healthy, and we just don't we don't use the tools we've been given. And. When we put things in our body, like high fructose corn syrup, refined white sugar, enriched wheat flour, you know our body our body doesn't know what to do with with everything in there. I, gluten intolerance is probably just herbicide, pesticide, toxicity buildup in the body. Management. Management. Most most autoimmune disorders make sense. I mean, if you really, really look into the mechanism behind what's causing it is your body's freaking out because it's so full of, of inflammatory 
junk that it can't it can't separate that from itself anymore. Yeah. And one thing about putting all that sugar in your body, cancer doesn't know what to do with it. That's food. It's food for cancer. It's exactly what it is. Like literally sugar, corn syrup, carbs in general is food for cancer. I think the one thing we're learning too is that you have to remember that what's the cause? We're, we're always looking at what the problem is to what the cause is. Well, no, why does this person suffering? Was it some, is there a stressor that's in their life that they, you know, are there some changes that they need to make so that their body is able to, you know, not necessarily fight off the cancer, but just not allow cancer to hope. I think so. when we had Dr. Zach Bush at the field school in 2019, his opening comment that day was all cancer is caused by stress. And if that's not an eye opener. <laughs> so true. I mean, whether yeah. it's stress on your body that you're putting on it with food, it shouldn't be in it or stress in your environment or stress from not sleeping, or whatever. The biology belief Brian and I listened to that several years ago, and that was kind of one of the common threads in the book was that um, I can't even remember what the percentage was that he, that he says in that book, a quote specifically, that X amount of all of our disease is all environmentally caused. And it was like 90-some percent. I mean, it was a huge, huge amount of all disease coming from our outside environment, not from our DNA, not from our parents, but from things we can actually control. I'm not a doctor, neither neither any of us, and it's only thing that we can, you know, any of us can really speak to is our personal experiences, and it doesn't take long when you stop eating seed oils, enriched white flour, and processed sugar before you start feeling better. And what I've really noticed over the last year and a half, two years, is that when I go do go eat something, like stop by and eat fast food in a moment of weakness or just because you're on the road and need some convenient food. French fries fried in seed oil. I can, I can almost feel them as soon as they hit my belly. I can almost feel it. Yeah, I, I, can, I can now eat out once and probably be okay, but if I eat out two meals in a row, days. I'm, I'm sick. I don't feel well for days anymore. Stops my my whole gut, and I think you know your system's not meant to process it, but it does get accustomed to processing all of that garbage. And then when you quit, you know it's functioning healthy again, and you put it in there, and it does it freaks out, freaks out your whole system. And it's so weird because they, you know, the food scientists have figured out, even though the body is trying to tell you not to eat it, we need we've figured out how to put the stuff in it to make you want to eat it anyway. And override those, override those negative signals. No. So how, how was 2023 here on Fuller Farm? A little dry. We've been in drought now for three plus years. So it's getting, you know, a little trying there. Uh, the, the farm itself is responding to our management. We're we're seeing we're seeing pretty good positive changes in the soil and the resilience of the of the grasses and you know the pastures and things. So 
we know we're on the right track. If, you know, when we do start getting something that would resemble normal weather again, I think we're going to be in great shape. We're starting to see a lot of life below ground, a lot of, you know, earthworms and the microbiology, the infiltration's improving. So we, we know we're making some positive changes. It's right now, it's just needing some water and ponds. It's kind of, you know, made it kind of a rough year hauling water too much. Aside from that, the farm, the farm is responding nicely to what we're doing. Well, I know Josh and Gwen, they're, gosh, what are they? Probably an hour and a half north, 90, 100 miles probably, north? Probably an hour. They were telling me that, excuse me, they've caught some rains that grew some grass, but it was late. They just didn't catch enough. They didn't get enough heavy rains for any runoff to fill any of their ponds. So they were kind of watered out and they moved south down towards Cassidy where they had some more grass. And I, I just, I can't remember if they said that they had maybe a little more rain a little earlier down at Cassidy or just they'd plan to save that grass. And I was kind of wondering if you've caught some of those rains and have some grass and are just short on water or. Yeah, for the most part, we've, we've kind of lived paycheck to paycheck the last couple of years. We, we keep enough rain to keep the grass going. We've, we've had some spells where the grass really went backwards fast with the heat, but that's usually been a week or two at the most. And then we'll get a, a shower enough to keep the grass alive. But yeah, we haven't ran water here since May of 2022. Are your ponds looking okay? If you're a dirt farmer, they do. <laughs> that, that's probably uh, probably less than ideal if you're trying yeah. to raise livestock. We uh, the, the sheep, the sheep can still drink out of the pond if they have to. They literally crawl on their belly to get to it because they don't have the weight. The cows, I mean, not that we want the animals in the pond, but once in a while they get out and you know they're in charge, and the cows can't get to the pond. Been that way for over a year. How's the orchard doing? Has it recovered any this year? No, another rough year with the orchard. Uh, we did have pears, uh, had a late freeze again. It's just, you know, becoming more and more difficult with these weather extremes that we get. Last year, we didn't have any fruit production because of high wind during pollination. That's what we come, kind of come down to. So, uh, and then of course the drought and the heat. I, I imagine the heat was probably the bigger thing this year than the drought. I mean, for everything, it was just miserably hot. We had a really good apple harvest till what, probably mid-August. Made it within a month, and they just all aborted. Just from the heat. I think so. Yeah. I had a lot of tomatoes that did that. That looked like they they kind of pollinated. It looked like they'd actually set fruit, and then the fruit just fell off. Yeah, the heat got pretty brutal here through August and September, late July. And see, it it didn't start raining for us until really late in May, like just the last couple of days in May. And I'm not going to say it was hot, but there were some days kind of around the 20th of May that I'm looking at the grass thinking this grass looks like August, September, and 110 degree heat in the middle of a drought. It should not look like <laughs> should not look like this in May in, in any universe. And that was, that was hard to watch. It was hard to look at. And what this year taught me was, you know, the high, high intensity grazing events followed by long duration rest events. 
as long as you're appropriately managing the stock density through periods of drought, you know, that stocking rate with, uh, with rainfall, as soon as it rains, everything just, it just explodes. And I noticed on some of the other properties around me that are more like a set stock type operation, they didn't grow near the grass that I did. Yeah, we've, we've got the same thing here. There's, you know, the neighboring grass that might've looked good two falls ago, doesn't look good today. Not that there's a lot of it. Once in a while, you'll see pasture that looks pretty good, but they, they've really been abused now, two falls in a row, and that's, that's gonna hurt them, especially next year. They'll pay for it even more. And I've, we've seen with us, you know, we'll get, a, you know, a one week wet spell, and it's just amazing what happens. I mean, this place just explodes with life in a very short time, a lot of diversity. We know we're on the right track. We know we're getting there. Just goes to sleep and it knows it's time to go to sleep and there's not water. And you don't force it to stay awake and support livestock when it shouldn't. At least no more of it than you have to. The weird thing for us, we were kind of like you in May. We thought we were done. We thought it was over. Our cheat, our cheat was that tall and going to seed. And I'm like, if we, if we can't even get cheat grazing, well, this wasn't May. This would have been like in April. Yeah, early April, mid-April. At least like, you had cheat. Well, that was kind of what we used to get us to grass, you know, because we'd put out hay for, well, we ended up putting out hay for six months last year. And so that happens, and I'm like, man, we're, our goose is cooked. And then it, we got a little shower, and then it, and we, it kind of stayed alive, and then we got a wet spell, and we had, we had cheat that tall. Now, I'd, once it went to seed, I thought it was done. I'd never seen cheat take off and grow like that once it was that close to maturity or anything really, but we, we had, it saved our butt. Well, for us, it started raining, like I said, about the end of May, beginning of June, and I didn't even take in like my, my custom grazing cattle. Like I kept kicking the, I kept kicking the can down the road and being like, let's wait for weather, let's wait for weather. This is the number, they might have to go home in July. And it kind of got down there to the middle of May. And he said, hey, I, you know, well, I got to do something. I'm like, well, you can bring me this many, but just be prepared to send trucks back in 45 days if it doesn't rain. And then you go, then it starts raining. Like, it rains one time. Then it rains again. And it rains again. And you kind of, and it kind of start to relax a little bit. Mm -hmm. And it, it wasn't until the 1st of July that it dawned on me, like, I don't have to call trucks in two weeks. This is kind of nice. We even got confident just watching it rain at your place. I mean, if you want the drought to end here, you, it has to end there. And I'm like, okay, we're not getting the rains. We're Brian gets an inch and I get a quarter, but <laughs> we're getting a little rain and the drought mat keeps shrinking and keeps shrinking. I, we were just confident that it was over. Well, up until about happened. three, four years ago, it was the other way. It's like, oh, Gail and Josh yep. would get two or three inches of rain and Brian will get a half. But that's kind of the way it's supposed to be a little bit. Though. I agree. <laughs> yeah. That's the way it normally is. Yeah, that, that, that would be yeah. or Not to be mean, but. I mean, there's a reason you're out here in this part of the state, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it's there's not There's a reason we stay drought. on the east side of the Flint Hills. Yes. I mean, not going to lie, it does get a little bit rougher. Rough. It's more difficult the further west you go with the rainfall and just just the difference of 
what is it, like 200 miles? I think it's like 200 miles from, from here to there. Just the difference in the spring and summer humidity that you guys will get here that we won't have at home. That's, and the, the humidity during the day, that does a lot to help plants out because out there, if we don't get rain for 10 days, two weeks in 110 degree heat, everything just, everything stops and starts to cure out. Is it doesn't do that here because of the higher humidity. Yeah, but the downside is, you know, in in my life, I've seen the humidity lessen. We're, we don't have the humidity we did 20 or 30 years ago. We're becoming you, I'm afraid. We've noticed so at our house that's different than it is out at your dad's. Like just in gardening, um, Brian's dad has uh, asparagus growing all over his garden. And I mean, like in between everything this year, crowded out his tomatoes he didn't get any tomatoes because it was crowded out but he's left it there because it creates kind of like a cool humid area for him and he's up on this huge ridge and a south wind blows right across his garden all the time and I think that's helped some but just where he's trying to grow things compared to us it's like a different climate and it's 10 miles away yeah but but to your point though yeah I absolutely agree humidity is huge because you know Walter Yana told us in 2018 when he was here that I asked him about dew, fog, you know, things like that. What does that do to our average rainfall? He goes, if you can catch it, probably add 50% to your average annual rainfall. I can see how that. Many, how many people can catch fog or dew? I mean, you have to have a leaf and hopefully, you know, you, you sure you can catch some fog on a two-inch tall plant, but you catch a hell of a lot more on a two-foot tall plant. I've seen that and I've wondered about that for years. You know, the heavy late fog in the morning, in the summers, you know, I'll go out in the side by side and have to run the windshield wipers because there's so much water coming up over the front of the machine just off the grass. I'll have to run the windshield wipers so I can see. And I've, I've wondered for a long time, is there a way to quantify that in terms of effective precipitation and what the grass is receiving. Because when I can go out for a week straight and every morning there's a heavy wet dew, and if you just get out and walk five feet, you're soaked from the waist down. Uh, yeah, there is. He, he, he thought, I don't know if he had this backed up by science, but he thought you could probably find a way of hanging a paper towel or something and then wringing the water out of it, and there there would be a calculation. He said, there's probably a way you can measure that, but I don't know if he had a true scientific, you know, formula for that or not. I, I would be really curious with you how much do you have in the morning compared to your neighbors, even in your more drier environment than us, because I know when we left the other farm with our organic matter from 5 to 7% on the other farm that we had improved over the years, I wore overshoes 340, 50 mornings of the year, and I wore overshoes till 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning. There was a lot of dew. And here, I, I have yet to wear out a pair of overshoes here in three years. And, and I know we're in more drought, but it, it's also the water cycle isn't functioning here. We're right. not getting... We're not getting the moisture coming up out of the soil because our water cycle isn't functioning properly yet. 
Do you think that there's a difference between precipitation that comes from fog or dew, like we're talking about, <clears throat> as far as mineral content versus rain and how the plant would effectively absorb that because it wouldn't just be washed off? That's a great question. It, it would be different because it's coming from much lower in the atmosphere. So there's probably more concentrated because it's not all just washing out. Probably some differences to it. Um, you know, and, and with that, I don't know. You know. We're also raining glyphosate anymore. <laughs> I don't know how high glyphosate you, you could also maybe argue there would there be more glyphosate in, in fog, fog than rain. That's what because, I was kind of wondering. So, so there could be a catch to that. Working in the nursery several years ago, one of the things that was really, really notably clear when you had a rain in the morning on one of the houses that had like a shade cloth on it that let water in versus one of the covered houses, the plants that receive the rainwater 100% grow and respond differently to plants that receive well water even. So, I mean, I would think there would be a yeah a big difference there. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there is. And then add to that, some of our rainfall is microbially enhanced or produced and does that change the mineral content of, of even one rain to the next rain i was going to say in rainwater there's also going to be some bacteria there's going to be you know there's going to be some microbial life and some bacteria and things that are alive and moving that aren't going to be from a well water source that's going to be you know from from underground or there's well i guess in well water, there's usually microbes and bacteria too, at least some of them. It's just different. It's I mean, just the plants are meant to catch the water from the sky. And you can tell that clearly when you see, you know, 30 plants that are exactly the same as 30 plants. And you, you walk in in the morning and they've each had a quarter inch of rain. And one of them was natural and one of them came out of well water. It wasn't even city water, clean well water way down south. And the plants just are awake and vibrant and live alive and you know firm looking and healthy and the other ones are just kind of droopy that's interesting you, you expect that from city water don't think about it with well water yep yeah but once it's yeah have well, but well how water, do you how do you well water keep, is moving how do you those, those minerals are within that within that water yeah right? has the, there the thing has to be well water wouldn't be wouldn't have the moving. vortex it, it won't be doing that I assume, you know, when it's moving through soil, it's probably not well, able to span like it. more meant to be, I mean, in the, in the scheme of plants, in the plant cycle, more meant to be where the water's stored and kind of like filtered, not necessarily where we're watering our plants. So it's supposed to be coming from the sky most of the time. Yeah. So it makes but, sense it wouldn't be. As no, but water, when it's on the surface moving, you know, creek, river, whatever, yeah. it's, it's, it's constantly in this little vortex. You see these little, you know, and it's just the way water, and I, and I think that's, Part of how it keeps mineralized, Jack, I think it was Zach Bush and Joe Mercola did a podcast I listened to several years ago on hydration. And one of the things they talked about with our reservoir system is once you stop the flow of water, it starts to demineralize instantly. And I'm, I'm thinking it probably has to do with that. You know, you're constantly seeing that water wanting to spin a little bit, even if it's flowing north and south, it's still, yeah. still got some circles to it. Right, because, you know, all the river... River beds are different in the water mm -hmm. is it water molecules as they slip yeah. past. Yeah. Makes sense. It's just kind of, it's stirred. I mean, it's just constantly just like. And when it up. stops, when it's, when it's still, then that wouldn't keep anything up 
Uh, that makes a lot of sense. That's interesting. Hmm. Uh, I was um, want to circle back to the comment, the question you had about, you know, do on my place versus the neighbor's grass. Now, I'll, I'll do my observations from my side of the fence or from the county road because good fences make good neighbors mm-hmm. and I'm not going to go go out onto the neighbors, especially where I could be seen, you know, mess around in the dirt or mess around in their grass. But just, just from my side of the fence and driving through the roads, um, I mean, the tall grass catches the same amount of dew no matter where it is. That's, that's kind of been my observation. Um, you know, and of course, you know, how, how dense your grass is too, how dense and tall. But if you don't have any tall grass, I mean, if you're grazing buffalo and gamma grass that's two, three, four inches tall on, you know, two to three, two or 300 pounds an acre of forage, how much are you catching with that dew? Well, not a whole lot. It's blowing right across. Yeah. You know, how much am I catching in five, six foot tall, big blue stem and India grass? Probably a whole bunch. But I, I, I would venture to guess is with dew coming up that if you and your neighbor both had foot tall grass, I still bet you have more dew than, than they have. Because the dew's not necessarily coming from the air always. It's coming from the I, surface I think of the soil. There's also, you know, moisture coming up yeah. from the soil all the time. And you have, you should, I would hope you would have better water holding capacity and infiltration rates than across the fence. And so I would think you would be having more dew. And if you, you obviously probably always have bigger plants for the most part. So you're able to cycle that back down and keeping, you know, that from evaporating as much as across the fence. I'll try next time we have a dew to go out and look and try to find a patch of the neighbors that looks similar to mine across the fence and, and just see. Maybe go over there and just walk through it and see how wet my pants get versus the other side of the fence. You know, a, a, a fun thing we had this spring is we're, as this soil is starting to come alive, we're starting to see more, you know, fungal species, which is what we're hoping. There just there weren't a lot of mushrooms when we got here in the cow pies or the soil or the trees or anything. And this spring we had that one wet spell in, in late May and, and Lynette stumbled across just a whole plethora of mushrooms. And it was in some cover crop that was had some decent size. And so we're out there one morning and she come and got me, we're, out, we're looking for all these things. And you, you, you just, you know, you pull that can of your back and look, poke your head down in there and you just get hit with this steam, you know, not steam, but you know, hot, humid air coming up. Well, that's, you know, moisture that I've been able to catch. And that's just part of that, I think, that small water cycle. Tiny little greenhouses down there. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Which is why we, you know, had a perfect place for mushrooms. Yeah. Colin Sice, my buddy in Australia, um, three or four years ago, they had the big wildfires again in Australia. And they hit his farm... I think it was in, I don't remember which month it was, but it, it was his, he was going into his dormant season. It'd be like hitting us in September. So, you know, the grasses were going dormant, drying down. Not a good time for a wildfire. It was 114 degrees Fahrenheit the day the fire hit him. Ooh. And it burned a few hundred feet onto his property and went out. Because it was so wet underneath. I've wondered about that of on the ranch humidity. before. I think he, thinking he, about 
he makes his humidity. Thinking about dew from from both above and below is something like maybe we haven't really been doing much. But yeah, like that that you're absolutely coming from stuff you've caught not today but last week or last month. I was just you mentioned calling in Australia and I can't help but think about you know, Josh and Gwen were telling me that they went to this uh they call them cattle stations in Australia. Four point four million acres. This one station. He said they'd get up and get up, load up a couple dirt bikes, and drive two hundred miles to their work site for the day. Do their work and then load up and drive two hundred miles back. Now this is not like driving two hundred miles from Gail's house to Brian's house down nice paved US fifty four. <laughs> this is the outback of Australia where there are no paved roads. Like, could you imagine 200 miles of ranch two track to get to work? No, thanks. That'd be exhausting. Terrible. Australia sounds like a very, very strange place to ranch, but I imagine a very similar conversation takes place in Australia among <laughs> friends saying, those Yanks in America sound like they do some really strange stuff. Uh, they were talking about uh, how they you know, they use helicopters down there a lot to muster cattle. They call their, their big gatherings, they call them musterings, and they'll use helicopters. Which if you, if you want to see something cool on YouTube, like that's something cool to watch. Australian helicopter mustering, those guys know how to fly. I've been in a helicopter before, and I would have zero desire to go ride in one of those. Doing that, it would be fun to watch, but not to do. Um, but Josh said that they, the last day they were there, one of the Hilo mustering pilots took him and Gwen up. And I'll tell you guys after we, we hit the recording, that if you want to know, you have to go back and listen to last week's episode because it's a funny story. But uh, you might not, after listening to Josh, you might not be able to pay me enough to get <laughs> me in that helicopter. Yeah, I doubt it be worse than a crop duster probably. Ugh. And I, I've watched him um, when we had the feral hog issue 10 years ago. Did you get touched by that over here? Yeah, we had him. And U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services, um, yeah, I think it was Fish and Wildlife, one of their like obscure divisions, they came out, they got money from Kansas Health and Environment, fly a helicopter, and they shot pigs out of a helicopter and this guy was taking that thing down into canyons. Like, we were standing up on the ridge and looking down at the helicopter, and they're down banking through these. On the ranch? Um, some of it on me, some of it over on Hoagland, some of it up on Coger. And Those canyons aren't very wide, man. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know, and it's kind of, you know, kind of a big helicopter to drop into one of those little box canyons and go in there and shoot pigs, but. I was talking to the pilot, and the pilot had like 30,000 hours in that helicopter. Like, I bet he knows how to fly it well. Yeah. Power time. I'm glad there's guys in the world that'll do that job so mm -hmm. I don't have to. So, 2024, what are your big plans? 
I provided her. I always like to hear the answer to this one. What well, are your we'll, big we'll plans? Both, yeah, both <laughs> of us. We both will have an answer there for this. There you go. There go you ahead. go. Go ahead. Yeah. What well, are you? What are you gonna? What are you excited about for the coming year? Just to see how the farm changes. I've so enjoyed this journey, just watching it all change and all the I've loved all the different plants that have arrived that and plant arrived as we came to practice. So or as the came practice was previous And just yeah, I just love all to watch all of this and I love all the different birds that show up and all the different insects and all the wildlife continually. I mean, this year we counted seven qu coveys of quail. And when we came, we saw two on the road. Oh, wow. so, two quail. Two quail on the road. So, yeah, we've seen so many this year, and that's what I enjoy. I like that part. I grew up, in, grew up riding horses and uh, cattle and know what it's supposed to look like. You remember a time before trees? Yeah, just wide open spaces. That's all we saw. We rode. Yeah, the trees were very few and very far between. What I got to see when I was growing. So I know what it should look like, and I know the way that... I know the plants. I, I, I used to remember all the plants because my dad taught me a lot of the the native plants, but I don't remember them all. But I remember what they look like. I don't remember the names, but I remember what they look like. And so when they arrive, I know that that's what's supposed to be. That's what I'm seeing. Before. Like Grandma teaching me all the bird calls, but for yeah. some reason when I became an adult, I didn't think that was important knowledge, and I... It just left. Discarded it, it all. Yeah. Forgot yeah. that to make room for... Yeah, for some, really important stuff. Yeah, you something know, like, important like... What? Fertilizer rates. Yeah, and, or yeah. I was thinking like what brand of herbicide. Exactly, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. interesting how your brain does make room for those things when you slow down, though. We were down at the uh, river. I had my niece and nephew here a while back, and we were sitting down at the river playing, and there was a strange bird. I've lived there for 10 years, and there's a strange bird call that we kept hearing. And the kids were like, oh, what's that, what's that? I don't know. It's a bird noise I've never heard here before. So the kids and I dig up, you know, get on the internet and start looking and come up with what the kind of bird is and his call. And he's been living down at the river for months and months now and we carry him from the house and it's some kind of bird I've never even seen anywhere near our house. It's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. cool to see things just, I think it's even since nobody's been farming the field, you know, it's not in great condition or anything, but at least it's, at least the, the bad stuff has stopped. There's a lot more life in our yard. It's not being sprayed and it's not being tilled. Yeah. Yeah, our, I think for both of us for next year, our, our farm ground, we're converting half of it back to native grass, or we're not converting it. It's We're allowing it to convert. and You're just going to leave it alone. Yeah, and we're seeing it. I mean, it's it's going through the the steps that we're expecting. And um, so when, this last, this past fall, 23, or where we are now, you know, we we're hoping to see a little bit of, switch grass and maybe a Indian grass or two. Those usually the first grasses that show up, the forbs show up first. And we saw a lot of 
we think Indian grass and even big blue stem last fall, but it was so dry it didn't seed out some of it, so it's a little hard to tell. But I think we're I think we're actually ahead of schedule, so we're both kind of excited to see what it's going to look like next next year if we get some the water. I have a I real think, hard time finding Indian grass until it throws a seed head. Yeah, me too. Really easy to identify in October. Yep. yep. Pretty difficult the rest of the time for me. We're still on a pretty sharp learning curve with trying to ID plants and all that stuff. Uh, when did you start transitioning that farm ground? Uh, we moved here September of 19. And so, that, you know, that's when it started. So the, the downside of, the th or the thing that slowed us down, I guess, of the, you know, we've got 160 acres total with seven ponds. And this is 40 acres, so it's a fourth of the farm with no water. Okay. So trying to graze it and get any kind of biological, you know, speeding up biological time, which is what we do with grazing, that, that was a little difficult to do, you know, the first couple of years. The, the sheep is not so hard because hauling water to the sheep is pretty easy. It's, you can haul several days worth of water in one one tank. So we were able to get the sheep on it pretty easily. The cattle, we had to be, you know, the first couple of years, we had to go out there when it was raining. So the terraces had water. We've, we've now dug, what have I dug, three holes or four holes for, so we've got some, some water out there. So that's really helped, helped us get the cattle out there more. So it's, we're starting to crank it up now. Okay. Hang on, hang on. All right, go ahead. Say something. Okay. Hello. Hello. Goodbye. All right, we're going in three, two. So that farm ground, did you plant it back or did you put any seed out there or are you just relying on seed bank? Uh, we're relying on seed bank. We, I've attempted a couple of annual cover crops. It's, it's been tricky between the drought and not having instant access to drill and things like that. So the cover cropping hasn't done much. So we really haven't got, well, I mean, as far as getting a lot of grazing off of it and a lot of carbon, you know, doing the, the, what you fully expect out of a cover crop. Yes, we're getting some gains out of it, but it's, it's minimal compared to what we could be doing if we had a little better management. So yeah, and everything we're getting is just coming out of the seed bank. Um, it was really, it's really been kind of fun to watch. Uh, when we moved here, this farm was managed organically and managed like a golf course. So everything was mowed, weed-eated, dissed, and it was perfect. And the farm ground, I, th I think for the last two or three years, he was disking it multiple times a year. It is just beat to a pulp. And then the year that they had it on the market and we bought it, they were finished mowing it once a week. And so we got here and, you know, it was crabgrass and bindweed and anything that could grow under three inches. And the next year, so in 2020, our first summer here, it was probably what, 80% ragweed, common ragweed, just completely dominant. And very, of course, the bindweed and some of that stuff was still there. And there was a little, there was some diversity, but it was just solid ragweed. The sheep, we were able to get them on it a couple times and they, they did some good on it but we didn't get them across the whole thing. In 21, it was probably 40, 50% ragweed. And then a lot of forbs. We had Illinois bundle flower and sunflower and just a lot of the, the native forbs started showing up. 
a little bit better than ragweed. Yeah, and then in 22, you know, less ragweed still. And then this year, there's still ragweed out there. I don't know if it's still dominant. Eh, it probably is, probably about 10 or 20%. But we're seeing, saw some grasses this fall and a lot more diversity in the forbs. And it's it's been really fun to watch. I mean, it's there's really times you drive out there and it's actually more beautiful than the prairie is. It's, you get a week or two when the everything's blooming or something, and it's just gorgeous out there. And you, the, you're getting a lot of birds and stuff coming in there now, too. So. Do you know how long it was farmed for? Well, yeah, kind of. And if that is that was probably farmed as long as as long as people have been, been farming in Flint Hills. Yeah. We've got maps on this farm dating back to 1920s. And even the native, two-thirds of the way up the hill, was farmed for 10 to 20 years. Gosh, doesn't it just and blow a, your mind what they farmed back in the 30s? And that was here? a steep hill. It's, it always blows me away when I see some of the places that their terrace is on from the 30s or the 50s. I'm like... Why did they think it was a good idea to farm that? Yeah, still today you can walk. And, and the, whoever reseeded it, there's places out here that the, the go back, most people can't even tell it. it's that good. It doesn't look like it's been disturbed. But when you get to the line, almost to the top of the hill, you have to literally step up onto, onto the unbroke prairie. It lost that much soil. That's crazy. In a short time. And that's one of those things that, like, it. you pointed out to the right person. They're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But you pointed out to the guy that used to own that dirt, and he's like, oh, no, that's that's not what happened. That that soil didn't erode. I don't know where it went. Yeah. Yeah, I still have those discussions today, unfortunately, that farmers aren't causing erosion. I imagine that's a pretty short discussion on your part. Usually. No <laughs> sense wasting time with some. <laughs> Isn't there some some kind of saying about arguing with an idiot? We'll pass on that. <laughs> okay. How is your uh, how are things going with your stage? You guys rent your house out over here, right? Your little you guys have a lot of guests during colder months, or is it mostly warm weather stays? Well, right now it's hunting season. Greenwood County is really known for their bucks. Uh, White-tailed deer is quite popular, so. Yeah, so renting the house, you know, for the hunting season starts the first part of November and goes until the 10th. So. We have a lot of people who want to reconnect with the farm. That's what we get mostly during the summer is a lot of kids and families like that. So they want to see the animals. They want to interact with the animals. They want that experience. The one thing we figured out is people come uh, for the farm experience. At times it's not associated with other things, just that they want the farm experience, which takes time um, to take people around and to show them different things, and they request that. So we do that, but I always tell Gail, it's, it's one interaction at a time. And every time you interact with somebody um, who doesn't have farm experience, you give them a different view of farmers, and you give them also a different view of how how farms and they find this farm 
which is so fun for us because we don't sometimes see the beauty. We sometimes just see what. And with them, when they come, they are just in complete awe. Flowers blooming, life, the way the animals, you know, how peaceful and quiet. They're so surprised by all because that's not the life that they get to experience in wherever they go. And so when they get to see that, it's wonderful for us because we get to view the farm in somebody else's. I think that's amazing. I think oftentimes on our own places, we miss so much and mistake needing to provide an experience for someone when really you're providing a place for the experience to happen because the stuff's already here, you know. The space is there, and really that's what people need. Is the space. They need the, the space, space and the quiet and the peace and the... Just the green, everything that, that's out. So many neat spots. You know, for, for example, in, you know, in 2020 when the farm ground was 70, 80% ragweed, it wasn't the most fun place to go to, you know, get lost in nature for Lynette and I. The visitors, they didn't. They don't care what ragweed is, rag do they? Weed is. Right. Well, they yeah. might in September, you know, for a couple of weeks. But other than that, they, you know, they thought it was beautiful. So it's, yeah, and, and that's a good reminder, especially for me, is, you know, you know, beauty in the eyes of the beholder, whatever that is. That's a cool way to knit yeah. community into your farm too, because a lot of times, you know, everybody thinks you have to go to town to, you know, intermingle with people and really. Part that's missing is them being away from all of that. And, you know, you guys definitely get to enjoy your place more because you are seeing it through other people's eyes. A lot of things, a lot of people miss that, I imagine. During the get big or get out era, which I just kind of have this thought that is maybe starting to end. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll see the end of this get big or get out era. Um, but, you know, our, our communities are smaller, and the thought for 20 years has been, well, if you want to do anything, you got to go to town. you got to go to town. And now it seems like the whole script is flipped, and the town folks want to come out here to get back to everything they thought they were escaping 20 years ago. Yeah, I'm just a farmer. Okay. I heard somebody say that yesterday on a podcast we were listening to. A, a gentleman who seemed very intelligent, actually. Um, said about himself, well, I was just raised on a farm. Like, what do you mean you were just raised on a farm? You could probably solve problems that most people wouldn't even dream of solving because of that, you know? A little, little similar to I'm I'm just a stay-at-home mom. Exactly, exactly. Like, you're one of the best problem solvers in the world. Just a think... stay-at-home mom. You're an organizer. <laughs> you're a scheduler. You're a nurse. You're Janitor, a medic. maintenance. Yeah, I mean, it's... <laughs> yeah. I so there's another thing that they're coming for i mean what she talked about is spot on but there's also a minority that are coming to see the sky especially at night yes um you know just things that again i i try not to take for granted because just nothing more beautiful than a night sky in the country when it's dark but go you know go to kansas city on any given night and look up and it's not there it just doesn't even not exist there. Like the Milky Way. How often do you guys see the Milky Way at night? Whenever there's not clouds, right? Yep. We see it whenever there's not clouds. And you know, all four of us take it for granted that we are in, I don't know, probably let's just say 
less than 1% of the population that in, on a cloudless night can see the Milky Way. There's probably less than 1% of the population in this country that can say that. We were, when we went, we were talking about Turner Falls when we were eating earlier, we went, went out there and, and uh, I think a lot of times when people are thinking about concessionizing on their farms or their places or whatever their land is, you think about needing to have, have to have a destination or, you know, supplying something for people to do. And when we went out to Turner Falls, that's one of the things that I noticed is that there's nothing there. It's, it's too shallow to boat in. You can fish a little bit, but there's no, there's swimming and that's it. There's swimming and camping and there's no provided activities. And it's the exact same reason that you guys are saying the activity people want is just simply to get away. And I think a lot of people on their farms and ranches are taking for granted what someone else sees when they get there. Yeah, and that that's a great point because, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems that the families that we get here that come to bring their kids to interact with animals or nature for maybe the first time or rare occasion for them. And it seems like we have two different sets of kids. We have one set of kids that come, that don't stop. I mean, they hit the ground running and when they get tired of chasing chickens or looking at cows or trying to climb a tree, they make up some game to play or they we have we have some that come down here and try to trap chickens or ducks and they try to build <laughs> whatever they can to you know to trap something or catch something. And, but unfortunately we have way too many kids that go with a tour with mom and dad in the morning and then they're in the house the rest of the day on the Wi-Fi. Yep. It's and interesting. You can just see the the lack of imagination. And usually we know in 30 seconds upon arrival what kind of what kind of person has been of, raised what kind of yeah 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 what that. kind of stay those people are going to have and we see some things that we could probably you know if we knew ahead of time we could probably even tell what it was going to be like but it's just you know it i'm kind of torn between it's really cool to see these kids come out here and do things, you know, and like they innately like, want to trap like stuff. We were, Why we is were that? Kids. Yeah, you're just constantly out making up games or whatever. But it's it's just so sad to see these other kids that, you know, what what we're doing to our kids today with squashing their imagination and denature, you know, desensitizing them from nature and really feel for for them and what their life will be like. Have you guys ever hosted homeschool groups out here? No, not yeah. well, well. What we get is we get we get home families. Yeah. There's a, a lot of those, and you, and you can tell them pretty easily yeah. um, when they come because they, they truly are very interested. Their questions are amazing. You know, they're very connected with what's... No, they, yeah, they interact. Like adults. They come They come to you. Yeah. They come find us to ask a question. Ask a question. You know, we don't have to chase them down and... Because one of the things that we tell them is that, you know, this is a... This is a we, we practice free range with our chickens and everything, and your children are welcome to free range. Um, you know, we kind of let them know we have lots of fencing and stuff like that. You know, if you need them to stay in a certain area, close the you know, and, and just let them go. And so the first thing that a lot of them will do is they'll come to me and I'll give them a quick tour. And then that, that gives them that open opportunity to go see those animals again and again and again. And they do it every day. And those kids you'll see out here by themselves. Yep. They come out Maybe by themselves. five or six years old even. And the Confident and, yeah. yeah. Yep. They know where they're going. They know what they're going to look for. And then, yeah, they'll stop you and, you know, if they see you and ask a couple questions. So what, they, what they're what they seeing or 
or, you know, even just tell you, hey, I just want you to know I saw, you know, a pig limping or something. You know, they saw something. And, mm -hmm. and that's, that's cool when to hear them. We'll have questions. Yeah. Why, is why, that, is, why does that chicken live over there? Why yeah, is, or why, why does this thing sticking out here? Why does this look like that? And not, not real common, but once in a while we'll even have a homeschool family come. And this is, I mean, class. They come out here and they, they find a way to have class and, you know, different things. And we've had a couple of, or at least one family that was here about Easter and used it for, they were homeschoolers, yeah, but they, you know, have a heavier spiritual load on their learning and they, they use this as tied it into the Bible and all of that. So there's just, it's really cool to see all the, you know, the diversity we get in the people that come here and especially the ones that, that free range. Yeah. Do you guys remember your very first day, your very first people that stayed on the farm? I think that's something I would remember because I think I would be nervous the first time, maybe even it was, a little. Yeah, it was tough to have the first first ones here, and they didn't interact. At all. So it was it was not a first. One of the things I learned was that um, two day stays um, are the best. Don't ever do a single day stay with people because they come here expecting it to be a motel, and it's and so. It's, it's a long, dark drive, um, and most people will come in the dark and leave in the dark, and then they're unhappy because it's so dark. Right. And so you're like, yeah, you, you've got to come. Well, it takes a day to get acquainted. It is, yeah. On day two is when stuff. you see the, yeah, the, the well, real exploring. For city people to, like, to stop, too. You know, like, we, we talk about this a lot on vacation. Like, the first day or two, you're getting out of being at home, at work mentality, and then you need a day when you get home to come back but it takes a little bit to get there so yeah I could see why one day would be a little disappointing for everybody you guys especially really yeah the the uh, RV people that we get to come through here one of the positives of COVID was how many people during the lockdown bought an RV and just hit the road and you know had kids we a lot of them even were teenagers and you know Instantly, you're homeschooling, and a lot right. of times for the first time ever. Yeah, it, it changed but, the way people think about it so much. Yeah, the, these those families that did that and made that choice, those kids learned more in three months or a year or whatever they was on the road and that they probably learned in their entire education in the school system. Life-changing things. Yeah. And we, we also saw, too, they didn't fear other people, and that was, that was something the pandemic kind of caused that people especially scared kids of these kids that were traveling in these RVs they unloaded out of those RVs like this is a Let farm and we get to roam and they had no fear of and we weren't fearful people we had a farm and we had a we had a family from California pretty early on and they had teenage boys they high school Two, two high school boys, and they let the boys plan the entire trip. It was homeschool. The boys got to plan what they were going to go see. They, I think they, their goal is to hit all the state capitals or as many yeah. as they could as part of their, you know, history, their homeschooling. History, like American and, history lessons. Exactly. We yep. kind of did they, a really cool trip. But how the journey, what, they got to determine how that journey went. So we're for sure going to the, Topeka, to the Kansas state capital, but how we get there was the boys. But they also, while they were here, they met a neighbor of ours who has a goat dairy. 
And so the boys postponed their trip to Topeka by one day so they could go milk goats. Oh, cool. Two, two California teenagers that got to milk goats. I mean, Pretty how cool do you do that in public school? Never. I mean, in California public school? No. Never. Do you guys have return guests often? A few. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's because the experience. But a lot of... So, if you were going to set... If you... Think how I want to put this. What I want to ask is lessons learned from setting up the farm stays and and how you do things here and how you would do it differently. I mean, for us, we, the first thing that we learned, two, two nights stay to do that, just because that way they really, truly get to experience it. Okay. Uh, I can't really think of anything off the top of my head we'd do different. Obviously, we've made changes. Like Lynette said, we went from one night to two night with Airbnb, but all of our campers are mostly overnighters. Uh, I think a big part of it is just meeting them and letting them know our why. I think that really just helps. I mean, by and large, probably 75% of the people that come don't have the best diet in the world, don't really understand why we're doing what we're doing, don't, don't put a lot of this together with what this has to do with human health or any of that. So I think it's important to have those conversations. Lynette's really, really good at it. I mean, she's great at meeting the people. Uh, one thing we've been talking about that we need to change, this is probably not where you were going, but 95% of the people that come here bring one or two or three or four cases of bottled water with them. Really? That that will change next year. We're going to we're not going to ban it yet, but we're going to highly discourage that. Okay. But Tell me more. Just, well, I mean I mean I, I'm I'm with you. Microplastics, yeah. waste, it's probably just Dallas or Kansas City municipal water in a bottle anyway. Mhm. Mm but obviously we're we're not getting our point across that the water here is safe and we have you know we have reverse osmosis and all those things but we just we have we have to find ways to lower our carbon footprint a little more there's there's things that we can do to you know, to help the environment while people are here having a good stay so education on top of what you're doing just providing the stay finding a way to educate people a little bit more we we do do that i mean Obviously, with the Airbnb, just to cut down the trash load, you know, was okay, so different containers for different recycling materials. Explaining, you know, about all food waste is never waste. You put it all in this container and you get to go out and or you get to go feed the chicken, whichever, you know, whatever you want to do and take your food waste out there and just see that these are, this is food. I mean, what you waste is not, is never you know, on this farm, we use it all. So um, nothing is ever wasted. It always goes to some. So we always make sure that that's the things that I try to teach them. And even with my hunters, we kind of had to, had a little discussion, you know, about, okay. So he's like, oh, well, I've got a container full of food. I'm like, that's perfect. Right over the fence right there. And if you, if you have, you know? like, people, I think people want to participate in what you want them to participate in. 
But if you just left a note out that said, you know, take your food out to the chickens or whatever, it wouldn't be the same as you telling the kids, this is why we're doing it. This is what happens when we do it. This is what happens when we don't, you know, and, and actually the act of them participating in the thing that cements memories. That's what I always try to remind myself is that it is, it does take a lot of time. So for me to do all of this extra stuff, that takes away from time the things that I need to get done. And so I always try to remind myself that every contact somebody is important. And that every time that I help change just one little thing, person, or whether it, or just an awareness, awareness of what, you know, what food waste farm. It's making the most of each contact you have with your guests, right? Okay. And in the case of the, you know, the food waste, especially with the families, I mean, that's, that's just a win-win because the kids just go gaga because they get to feed an animal. So that that makes it even more fun. And I, I bet that's that, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say it's going to be part of our thing with the, with the water bottles. It's not just or the plastic water um, bottles isn't just banning them, but it, it's just letting people know I, we want to try to find a way to educate them of what these water bottles are doing into the environment, and so not just that they maybe not do it here, but rethink it the next time they go anywhere. To, buy one to take with me and buy exactly. a metal water bottle to buy. take with you instead of buying cases of water everywhere yeah i bet that's the first time a lot of people have seen all of their food waste in one place to actually have you know a genuine concept of of how much is there yeah and water bottles would be the same way if you guys are if people are bringing them you're asking them to keep them all in one place you have to look at all that trash you know the whole time you're here so my there's a gentleman that's in my life that's a friend of my dad's. My dad has known this guy since college. His name's Randy. I don't know if I've mentioned him on the podcast or not before, but Randy is a very, very interesting guy. He's made his living most of his life sorting garbage. That's a very simplistic view. I don't know exactly what his job title is, but what he would do is he would go like uh, like New York or Chicago, would contract with him and the company he was with to come do a waste management study. So they'd go to the landfill and pick up a whole bunch of garbage and take it back and sort it out. And he said he could tell an awful lot about a group of people from the kind of garbage that they produce and what they throw away. He said the amount of food that you see is just absolutely appalling in the in the in the landfill but he said that the worst offender for taking up space in a landfill plastic water bottle plastic water bottles are taking up so much space in landfills because what do most people do when they get done drinking it put the lid on it and throw it in the garbage they don't maybe cut a slit in the bottle so the air can get out of it to compact. They don't crush the bottle so it takes up less space in the bag. They just put the cap on the empty bottle and throw it away and never think about it again. I've crushed my bottles for a long time because I've lived in a country. You have to take out your own trash. I mean, I would rather take out one heavy bag than five really light bags. Crush your dang bottles, you crush your dang cans. But what amazes me is single-use plastics just 
absolutely blow my mind. And you're like, okay, so we have a plastic five-gallon water water jug, like camping water jug. Those are reusable. Those are great. Five-gallon bucket. You could put all kinds of stuff in them. You can reuse it. You could, when it's useful life is done as a bucket, you could turn it into other stuff. But a plastic water bottle, a sandwich bag, you know, like a Ziploc bag for sandwiches. My dad probably still washes and reuses Ziploc bags to this. <laughs> yes, he does. Yes, he does. So do we. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And sometimes when I'm throwing away a bag that we've used once, I feel bad about it. Because I look at that plastic bag and I just can't help but think about the amount of oil and the amount of energy that it took to make that bag. And we use it one time. And then it goes to the landfill to be thrown away. Like, let's talk about carbon sequestration. Like, let's just leave some of it down there and not make so many single-use plastics. That'd be a good start. All I'll, about, I, I don't all know about convenience anymore. Everything, everything in our lives is about fast, cheap, and easy. So you can get to the next place yeah. that you yeah. don't want to be at? Yeah. You know, you, a water bottle and a water, what's a water jug cost? We all carried a water jug. I don't know, 15, 20 bucks. You know, five cases of water would pay for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and then you've got money to spend. But you've got to wash that out once in a while. Yep, that's true. I mean. You're don't. supposed to wash them out <laughs> once in a while. I think sometimes my water bottle has its own very unique microbiome. Oh, <laughs> when was the last time I was? I don't, I haven't washed ours in ages. Have you? Like the coffee pots in the Navy. Like if they didn't, if they didn't have layers of varnish built up in the bottom of them, you didn't want to use it because it was too new. Gross. Flavor. Gross. So besides sharing your why, what would be, like, I guess I'm asking, what are your other, like, tips for setting up farm stays or starting that type of operation? Because I think there's quite a few people out there that are looking for more ways to concessionize their property and get, you know, maybe get some more foot traffic so they can sell some more beef or they've got an outbuilding, but whatever. What? Yeah, I think, um, I'll let you go. This is more your enterprise anyway. And um, just convenient for those people. I mean, it's a convenience thing, right? I mean, so if you do want, um, if you want more people to come, you know, let's just say Airbnb, VRBO, you get it posted on there. You can also use Hip Camp if you just have, you know, just a space that, that people can come. Um, Harvest Host is another one. Harvest Host is amazing. It's, it's campers that they don't pay unless they use electricity or something like that, and they just buy product. And a lot of times you, they already know what products you sell, so they, they're looking for you. Um, a lot of the camping people, um, they're looking for high-quality products because they know that they can't get them anyplace else. So as they're making their tour across the country, they're looking for farms. Um, but really, it's just meeting everybody wherever they're at and always welcome, welcoming them to your farm, you know, that's the first thing I do is as the camper or as the people arrive, I, I meet them because I want them to see that, that I'm a person and that this is our, this is our home and this is our place. And it's amazing how much respect they'll have for that, you know, once they've met you. 
parent, they know about what you're doing here. So, yeah, kind of my tips to try to do it and just, yeah, always meet them. Yeah, yeah what, welcome What them. she said about meeting them is so important because, yeah, you get a whole new layer of respect of them for your property, of not wanting to throw out their cigarette butts or their water bottles or whatever. I mean, they realize there's humans here that care, so that's really important. Uh, we've got like, we're Airbnb that, you know, a po well, Harvest Host, you know, they're required or highly encouraged to purchase product in lieu of rent. Well, that's not the case with Airbnb, but we've still got, um, you know, our price list is hanging on the refrigerator and, you know, usually part of the discussion is, you know, we sell products. So there's, there's ways for us to try to sell other things uh, we try to, if they want a full-blown tour, they have to pay for it, obviously, Lynette, or I meet them when they arrive and they kind of get the, the nickel tour of what to do where, but if they, they really want the full-blown thing, then that's something they pay for. So there's, there's ways to, you know, add value to them and, but also revenue for us. Did you guys have to add anything infrastructure-wise before you were able to host just campers? Uh, I mean, electricity obviously is a thing, but I mean, just regular campers. You don't even have to. Have the, the harvest toast—they're—they're <laughs> they're not supposed to have. They're supposed to be fully contained or self-contained campers. But on the rare, we've had a couple a year that'll come in, and for whatever reason, you know, the water wasn't working in their last place, and they'll ask for water or electricity, and we always let them have it. It's, we don't—we don't ever say no. We don't play with the rules very good, but they're—they're they're not supposed to need anything. So no, we haven't had to add anything for that or Airbnb, the hip camp, the people come with the tent campers. It was just a matter of setting up campsites, which I built little fire rings out of bricks. They really just to mark anything. them off, kind of? Yeah. Okay. Now, that was, yeah, part of that was just so they could find their spot and things like that. So now we really haven't put much into to any of them, really. Uh, a lot of them are pretty low effort. I've got a couple of hip camp spots on the ranch that, you know, I'm a little farther off the beaten track, and I'm not in the Flint Hills, so there's just not not near the tourism out in the Red Hills, but I still get a few on that, you know, I still get a few on my hip camp sites, and it's been a pretty low effort deal, and I haven't been the best about going out to meet everybody that comes in because it's, it's right off the road. There's a lot of one-night come-and-goes, and I think I only charge like $35, $30 a night for that. And if I'm done with my work at noon and I drive the 10 miles home and the camper doesn't show up till 630, it's hard for me to want to go back out there yep. for five minutes just to meet him and be like, yeah, pull down there and park. And I also think that they pointed out a really good reason to look at it differently. Like, honestly, I know you've met some people and had good interactions with them, but I mean, that's kind of the whole. It's, it's contact. And yeah. that's one of the things that I think, and I always think about that all the time, is that I try to meet everybody because every contact I make, I give them a different view of farming. I give them a different view of what a farmer is like, but I also am able to plant those seeds of how important what I do to them. Not just in the world, but to you specifically exactly. and why to you it's to, important. Exactly, to each one of them. And yes, 
it is time consuming. But every time we interact with another person, we create this, this amazing web that will continually spread because they will mention because of something you said or something. And with that, that, that message it's, it's just so important to make that extra. But also when you make that extra effort, you meet one more them at court. And then when they do post a review about your hip, they'll say, oh, I met this wonderful rant. You know, and this is what he does. And these are the things he does. And you should go to this place because of what. We, we, we have the advantage of living here on the property, which makes it a lot easier because yeah I, I would be certainly less inclined to have to drive to meet a, a guest and time consuming you know financially that doesn't you know that starts to add up and takes time out of your life so that does make it a lot more difficult if you've got to really go out of your way to do it. and it's you know there we've had these discussions even with our harvest toast and our hip camp because they don't pay much I mean 30 bucks a night for hip camp, you know, so how much time can you afford financially to, to spend with them? Right. I mean, everything that she talks about is spot on because there's, there's, it does come back to you, but at the same time, it's still time out of your day. So I, if somebody's going to stay two or three nights, yeah, I'm probably going to go out and meet them. I've had, I had one that wanted to stay for a week. She ended up leaving after the third day because she had a family emergency back home. Uh, and we were communicating beforehand and like she asked me to come down and help her park and level her camper because she'd never pulled a trailer before. And then she was leaving. She asked, when, she, when she left, she told me, she says, thanks for putting it to where I could get back out by myself. <laughs> yep. um, one thing Lynette <laughs> is really good at is the, the people that come here, um, if, if she includes them in a farm experience, you know, the little kids get to go gather eggs or feed a bottle lamb that's just five stars. I mean, that's an instant re good review, but they'll say what they did. And then you know, the next people that come, they'll read that review. There's a lot of, a lot of these people read reviews. So yeah. when they see that, they, and they say, Hey, we saw something about gathering eggs. Can our, can our kids gather eggs? And so that really helps pull people. She does a really good job in our advertising, you know, people when they sign up, you know, can we see Leonard? Can, can we meet the dogs or, you know, the bottle lambs? And they've either read it in reviews or in, in her advertising. So a lot of them, they, I mean, they, they come here for this purpose of reconnecting, but they've already, before they get here, feel like they've met one or two of the characters on the farm and they're already asking questions. That's about, cool. We, we, we want to meet, we want to meet this animal. So you guys so. are like, <clears throat> you're kind of making it personal for them before they even get here by using your animals' names. And that's, I mean, that's, a little thing to think about, but that could be kind of a big deal, telling your story with some character in it so that when people get here, they already feel like they're part of the story. And I, I don't know, initially, do you warn them a little about Lucy up front, that Lucy it meets them? No, that's my, that's my, that's my first talk. Okay. That's my first talk well, when I, when we go, when I go and meet them. A couple of years ago, we had a bottle lamb that got a little confused and started to identify as dog and thought Lucy was its mom. Okay. And it got to where it followed Lucy everywhere. And Lucy is the first, she's the first one to meet you. 
She hears you when you turn off the highway. She's already coming up the driveway barking and hair up. And the lamb would be following her trying to bark. I mean, it was the, and so that became an instant hit with all of the guests. So it was Lucy and Peanut, the lamb that identified as dog. And we had probably for a year after Peanut was gone, people coming asking about Lucy and Peanut, you know, because people, so many reviews got posted and so many pictures got taken of Animal Lucy friends, and man. Peanut and posted on Facebook or Instagram and not just in the reviews. It, you know, so there's, there's little things like that. There was a complete accident, but if you, you know, find things like that, that really, I mean, Peanut probably rented, Peanut probably made us quite a bit of money. I'm so excited. I'm so glad you told that story because I mean, I think about all the, like all the silly little things that have happened at our house that are just a silly thing that happens in the day of the life of us. Like mm -hmm. the chicken that thought it was a guinea. Exactly. Yeah. We have a barred rock that lives with the guineas. Cause mm -hmm. I mean, why, why would that be? Why would the guineas be, they look the same. I mean, yeah. they just don't know. And guineas hate chickens. So they don't hate the barred rocks, I guess, because they know. Oh, well, that would look, they yeah, don't, you can't, like if you see it from enough. far enough away, you can't tell. Um, and in it, and there was also a silver lace wine dot in there. And you, like, there was the, there was never any brown chickens with the guineas. It was just the black and white chickens. But there's, there's always weird things that happen that we talk about and laugh about that you don't think about, you know, that sharing that with somebody would be, you know, great. All the silly things we name our animals. I mean, just those stories alone are pretty hilarious sometimes. They do. They love that. They love all those parts. They want to know why that animal was there. Yes. I, I think we're probably getting to a point where we're going to be able to raise our rent in May because of lambs and baby calves. People are starting to ask, when, when can we come see the babies? Well, if they're going to ask to come see the babies, yep. they're going to pay to come yeah, see the babies. Yeah. I mean, that's in demand. And Lynette took her two cousins out. They were, what, seven and ten. We got, I just happened to see a ewe laying down, and I come down and told Lynette when they were here once staying. They, they come a couple times a year. And Lynette was, took them up and they got to see one actually being born, you know, oh, from a close cool. distance. Exactly. That's something they'll never forget. You know, that. Were they, the, I can just imagine, were these city kids? Mm -hmm. was, mm -hmm. Were their parents with them? Mm -hmm. How horrified were their parents at what they were seeing? No, they were just really curious. They yeah. asked lots of questions because, you know, just the, the whole birthing process, right? From the you, from her just spinning and pawing and, you know, from the very beginning, very near. So. Well, and the girl is, I could see her as a vet or a zookeeper. She's, she's just an animal person to begin with. So this was a really big moment for her from just from that aspect of furthering her passion and desire to be around animals. Yeah. And of course it was born on the driveway. So that meant that, that those the little lambs had to be moved. So they uh, got to carry them. Yeah. So they got to carry the little lambs. Oh, yeah, they got a first-hand experience of start to finish. Something those kids are not going to forget yep. for a very long time. Yep. To see life, life coming up. Great stuff. That's a good place to, good place to start wrapping up. You got anything else, uh, Gail, Lynette? Do you have any events on the farm coming up? I think you do, I remember. So we actually have a, um, a lady coming and she's going to do astrology and numerology. So for the new new year of 2024, she's going to predict 
kind of a cool event. Yeah, that'd we're really be excited about that one. Yep, her name is um, Catherine and um, she's written several books. Yep, she's written several books, and yeah, that'll be kind of a cool event. And that's going to be February eighth, right? February eighth, ninth, tenth, somewhere in that, right in that area. So yeah, on a Saturday and a Sunday, and yeah, you can register for that. Website Fuller Field School, Fuller Farm. No, it's, oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You haven't posted those uh, flyers yet, then. No, no, no. I didn't know I was supposed to on the website. My bad. Okay. Well, yeah. Maybe Eventually, it will be on the then we'll be able to register them at yeah. Fuller Field School. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. It'll be actually. It'll be yeah. It'll they'll be the flyers will be there, which will show you the link. That sounds it's like only a, that in a field school is only two events we got officially planned so far, right? When does field school registration start? Oh, oh, sorry. I was going to tell you to turn that off. I know. You didn't tell me. Sometimes that happens. Every once in a while, I forget to put mine on mute, too. Um, <laughs> so before we get out of here today, field school, you said that was coming up uh, October 3rd and 4th? So where will people be able to find out information and roughly when? Uh, fullerfieldschool.com. There will also obviously be posts on Facebook, et cetera. Uh, I assume we'll probably open registration after the first of the year, get through the holidays and get it, everything up and running. Probably have it going then. And like, if you're coming to the field school, tent. Like tent camping in Gale's yard. It's It's... Well, as my dad would say, it's a happening, man. It's a <laughs> yeah. happening. Yeah, it's been really fun. You know, since we moved here, well, you know, we moved here in the the first summer was 20 with COVID, and that just changed everything. And we we were adamant we were going to host our workshop that year, so we moved it outside, and we made it happen, and it, it was such a hit. People just literally begged us, please, no more PowerPoints. So we've now been outside for four years, four schools. And so, yeah, now we allow, you know, the, I guess back up, the, the downside of moving to Severy is the overnight accommodations are a little more difficult than they were in Emporia. So we've added, anybody that wants to come and camp out can come and camp out for $25 a night. And so the night before the field school, it's not uncommon to have 20, 30, 40 people sleeping on the farm. Playing music around the campfire, singing about earthworms. Campfire, yep, singing about earthworms, and we have community meals, and it just it's you know becoming almost a festival type, really fun, really fun atmosphere. It's just really added to it having having the people staying here. Well, maybe instead of Fuller Field School, it'll become the Fuller Regeneration Festival. Yeah, we're getting yeah yeah. It, it seems like that too, and then yeah, food. So everything's based around food and really from local farmers and people who know how. Well, and we and bring we, in chefs to prepare it, so that makes it fun. Bring in some very passionate chefs who do a beautiful job with it. Then it's community. It, you get what we provide for the people that come to Fuller Fields is a community. And it's almost instant. Because everybody that comes just all have something in common with them. 
with that they they join in they help us wash dishes they yeah they help prepare food sometimes when the chefs need a couple extra hands and you know there's there's the sense of community that's full it's it's really helped take a load off of us it's very difficult for this control freak because when you're the host, you're the host. Everybody else is supposed to stay out of the way where well, you kill yourself working for two days <laughs> so that everybody else can have fun. And so it, it, it was difficult for me when people would ask to do something to let them. But I, Charles really hammered that home when he spoke here two years ago is, you know, paying it forward and the, 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 gift, the gift economy. And so I relaxed after that. And you walk in here now at six o'clock in the morning, on the day of the field school, yeah, there's somebody at the sink doing dishes and the coffee's already percolating and it's amazing you know. what happens when you let it. Yeah. Really. Yeah. yeah. And and they're not upset. I mean, no, so they're why? happy to help. Exactly. And just like you would be happy to help. Exactly. Leaving leaving that field school when Charles was here, I remember driving out of the place of your place that morning, afternoon, whenever we left, and just and saying to Brian, I have goosebumps here because the whole energy of the group of people that was here was just unbelievable. Charles, Charles had the same. He was, I mean, he did, he did his, he did his uh, presentation without shoes on, which was super cool. Yeah. Um, but by the time he was done, I had my shoes off and I know at least two or three other people did too. And I thought that was, it was pretty neat. When we brought Charles in, we, we were told by a couple of his friends that he will be a fantastic speaker. People will be blown away, but he will show up. He will give his presentation. He'll go back to his room because he's, that's just, Charles, he doesn't care for social events. He was in the middle of every conversation here. He was, he, I, I, I tell people, I really think he only showed up out of morbid curiosity of why a farmer in Kansas wanted to listen to him. And I, I really think that's the only reason he came and he did not get what he came for. He, he was, was magical here. It was wonderful yeah. to have, like to be here while he was here. And it, it was so cool, so well, cool. What I remember about that was he kind of started off and he kind of admitted that he started off on the back foot because it's like, I didn't know what to expect coming here. And this is completely different than what I had in mind. So just bear with me as I gather my thoughts. And I thought, wow. And then I looked down and I noticed he wasn't wearing shoes and I really started to pay attention and uh, the article that he wrote afterwards about some of his uh, his preconceptions before coming to Kansas and about meeting some of the people here, he didn't mention anybody by name. I, I think maybe except you guys, but he didn't mention anybody else by name. And it's been a while since I've read it, but it was just it was just incredible. Like he was just blown away that there's actually people that care about the food and the environment and the microbes and the nutrient and the water cycling and understand how it all fits together. And and care about each other without talking politics and religion. You know, it's, yeah, I think I think he was as blown away as anybody. And that's something the school is just, it's taken on a life of its own. And the speakers show up, we have, a, we have a really difficult time explaining to them what they're getting themselves into. And that's, you know, he was a perfect example. And then they show up and they're like, oh my God. He, he was so interesting to see speak because <clears throat> he's such a patient speaker and he's confident in his patience. So when he needed to take time to gather his thoughts, he just did that. 
and you, it was really cool to see how uncomfortable it made people at first. And by the end of the conversation, how different that was, I think it, I mean, I think that really made an impression on you on being okay, taking a minute to gather your thoughts in the middle of a conversation, not having to fill every. Yeah, I think it's just part of our lifestyle anymore is along with everything else, fast, cheap, and easy is dead air is no longer allowed. You, you know, dead air is wonderful. It gives everybody a time to think and digest. And, and I could see why he okay. wouldn't, wouldn't have been looking forward to the social aspect of the thing when you show up to a lot of social things, it's all about pretenses. And I think the reason that I left here with goosebumps is because it was real. The whole, there was no, you guys didn't put on some thing, some with some, you know, agenda. It was a, a group of people who the purpose was to gather and be close and learn and love each other. And I think that's how we were lucky enough to draw, you know, Nasha for next year's. She's such an, in such high demand, but uh, you know, our, our initial phone call with her, she wanted to know what we expected from her. And we said, you just show up and do what you want to do. You can talk about anything you want. And, you know, any speaker today, it's, you know, you're given a topic <laughs> like, and you're given an mm. hour and you're, you're told. All these constraints. This is, yeah, this is what you can, that's, we've never been that way. We, we want our speakers involved in the agenda. And with her, we know, you know, how speaking has become a job and we just want her to come and have fun. And we've just turned her loose and, she just she just blew up. We were on Zoom, and you could just see her face light up, and the wheels were already. Well, that's when you get spinning. the best of people is when yeah. you let them do what they're good yeah. at. Yeah. And the other thing we told her is we promised to feed her well, and we're going to house her right on the farm. You should have seen her light up. Like, I don't I have mean, to get a hotel. I don't have to go anywhere. I get to just walk out the door and speak right there on the lawn. And we're like, yeah, right there. Uh, and she's like, oh, my God, this sounds like this is going to be amazing. And it will be. It will be absolutely amazing. And she is a Kansas girl, yeah, which is even cool. Very cool. Yep. So she's returning home. Very cool. All right. Where can we find uh, you on the Internet besides fullerfieldschool.com? Airbnb. Oh, yeah. On Airbnb. Uh, it's under Flint Hills Premier Getaway. And that's also on VRBO. Hip Camp. Also. Uh, you just type in Severy, Kansas. and Same with Harvest Host. Same with Harvest Host. And the Airbnb is also on our website at fullerfuelschool.com. It, it talks about getaways. So you can also go on there to find a way to come see us. I have a very short list of saved properties on Airbnb. One of them is yours. And I've, we've had this idea for a while is to make a fake account under somebody else's name on Airbnb and book, book it and just show up. Have you guys ever had anybody just like show up that you didn't expect that you knew? Now you've ruined it, Brian. Great. I don't think so. We've ever. Nobody. Anyway, yeah, fun idea. It'd be amazing. We love it. We love when people come to see us. Fun idea. And that's been the, the nice there, thing there about would, having the there, Airbnb. There could be a little risk with that in that we might not be here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> John Doe's coming to spend the weekend, and we, we, they we got get plans out of plans. Already. It's like, uh, I know this guy. Yeah. yeah, here's the instruction for check-in. There you go. Good luck. Good yeah. luck. We, we had a couple signed up for hip camp a year or so ago. 
we didn't know them from Adam, but they, so, you know, they signed up for hip camp and they, I think they ordered some meat and eggs or something and a firewood bundle, which is pretty typical. And we were gone that weekend and come to find out they signed up for field school and they were wanting to become farmers and they, they were, they come here for that weekend to meet us. Oh no. Oh, so they got to meet the farm sitter. Yeah, <clears throat> but they didn't, they, we've since become friends, but yeah. You know, would we got to have a life off the farm. We've got to, we've got to all have time to be able to get away from the farm just to get away from some of the stress and the decisions and, oh man, I need to go fix that gate. Oh, I've got to tighten that wire up. Oh, maybe we need to go doctor that sheep. You know, sometimes it's nice just to be like, we need to leave for two days Hopefully everything will be alive when we get back. Yeah, it's it's just extremely important and very difficult for me because I don't care how beautiful your farm is and how much you love doing it. It's still that stress of the, the list, that everything that has to be done that day and what you think has to be done that day. And you know, Okay, you, Gail, you hypothetically, get... if you went to someone else's farm to stay on their farm, mm -hmm. Not if, that's what we do. Okay, when you do that, do you do you like look at other people's gates and be like, eh, man, I might stretch up that wire, you know, I'd you know, hang that gate a little bit better. No, I well, don't. Well, that's like, no, I don't have time for that. We never, I never look at it like we, that. We see, or I see that, but I don't, that's not what I think, but when I go to other people's farms, I ask if I can go do chores. Just to learn their place and to spend it, time with them. It's a little bit of, yeah, you get to see the, the backside of the farm or the inside of the farm. But you also get to see, you know, okay, maybe they do things just a tad differently that I, you know, what can I bring back to my place? To... I never thought about using this sort of container for a feed bucket. Exactly. <laughs> and yeah. I guess feeding their animals, you you know, if there's one dead, so what? It's not mine. It's you not know? the same <laughs> kind of stress. So there's not, yeah, it's not the same kind of stress. And it's, they're probably with you. So you're having a really good conversation while you're doing it. And, and maybe they're even going to open the gates for you. Yeah. We like to go to we've other done, people's we've done, farms. We've done yeah. that a lot. We love to see what they do and how they do it. The, exactly. And there was the, the first time I spent the night at Gabe's, though, he ended up in the emergency room the night before grass-fed exchange. And so I ended up doing chores all right. <laughs> not because you wanted to. <laughs> not the way I wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was the one time it wasn't very fun. Sometimes you got to take the good with the bad, and yeah. that's what it's like in agriculture, we say don't get a lot of choice. The only choice we have is how we choose to internalize it and how we choose to deal with it. Exactly. All right, it's a great place to end. Thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you. It's a lot of fun. Bye. All right, gang, see you next week. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to our podcast. We'd also love to hear your thoughts, so leave us a review if you haven't already. And don't forget to check out the Q&A and the polls on Spotify. Your support helps us bring more enlightening conversations and fresh stories from the world of farming and ranching. Thank you for listening to Ranching Reboot, your favorite regenerative ag podcast.